Um, <clears throat> so, we are continuing our series in discipleship. We're continuing to talk through what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, so, before Easter began, <clears throat> or before uh, Holy Week and before Easter, we talked through the underlying realities of discipleship. What, what is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? We looked at the gospel. We looked at what, uh, what consists of the context for discipleship, the content of discipleship, this idea of the gospels, this idea of the teachings of Jesus. We looked at that, and, and now for the next five or so weeks, I want us to really get into the practical, the nitty-gritty of following Jesus. What does a disciple do? Not just what does it mean to be a disciple, but day by day, what do we do in following Jesus? And this week we're going to talk about a very, very important part of following Jesus, and that is repentance. When we come to this text, we come to a text about the idea, the notion of repentance. And so, <clears throat> if you grew up in Sunday school, then you probably have a very simple definition of repentance that is right and good and true. <clears throat> and that is that repentance is turning around. Uh, the idea that repentance is uh, looking one way, recognizing that it's the wrong way, and turning around. And that's good. That's a great uh, definition. However, I don't know that it gives us the full depth of what repentance is. So when we talk about what it means to repent, I want us to look at a text in the Old Testament. I want us to look at this notion of repentance in the Old Testament because... It gives us a clear picture of the fullness, I think, of what God intends and what God desires and what the scriptures mean. You see, we can't read the New Testament without the Old Testament. We can't understand some of these words and some of these constructs without seeing what happened and what came before. And so as we look at this text, as we look at Isaiah 30, uh, there are just a few things that I want us to see. I want us to see the link between repentance and salvation. Then I want us to ask necessary questions. This is every week. We ask questions and we walk through them together based on what the scripture gives us. What is repentance? What does repentance do in us? And then finally, how is this even possible? If you grew up in a context like me, repentance was thrown out at you a lot. Uh, it was... It was yelled and the context was always fiery <laughs> hell repent 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 stop doing this stop doing that repent repent and so that's a word that when you come to it you can start to tense up a little bit 
It can be a word that brings bondage. Somebody is saying repent. They're going to tell me all the things that I'm doing wrong and how I have to do them right. And they're going to tell me that if I don't do them right, I'm going to go to hell. What's interesting is that when you look at the link between repentance and salvation in the Old Testament, you begin to get this idea of, of the value and the beauty of repentance beyond fear. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. For the Lord, God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, You will be saved by repenting and resting. In the text that Melissa read, uh, in that version it said, In repenting and rest you shall be saved. So immediately we see that the, the prophet Isaiah is saying that to God and for us, we have to recognize that there is a connection between this notion of being saved and of repentance, which is, interestingly enough, linked together with rest. And so we have to unpack a little bit about this idea of salvation. And so we've talked about heaven. We've talked about what God is doing. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked about Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' king bringing a new kingdom, uh, but this phrase, salvation, is important. It's critical to the Christian faith. And the ways that we've heard it, it's not that they're wrong. It's that they don't go far enough. And so we lose their beauty. The ways that we hear it is what salvation is from something, right? That's what we're saved from something. And that thing that we're saved from, what is it? Well, it's this future judgment. It's this future wrath. But what's interesting is when you come to the Old Testament, although every once in a while you look at the prophets and they'll say, turn or else Assyria is coming, or turn or else Babylon is coming, uh, very, uh, very often, first of all, when they say those things, it's already a foregone conclusion. Babylon is coming. God recognizes and understands the injustice and the iniquity of his people. Babylon is coming. Assyria is coming. And so, yeah, there's that. But more often than not, when you hear this idea of the Lord saved us, it's used in past tense because it happened in a present reality. So consider this. God saved Israel from Egypt. The Lord brought salvation to Israel. They cried out to the Lord, save us, and salvation came, and they were delivered from Israel. The cry for salvation in the prophet Isaiah is one that calls out from exile, from Babylon. Save us. And it comes. See, Salvation was never exclusively about future hope. Exclusively. Though it is about future hope, and though future hope is a part of it, salvation was never exclusively about the things that were to come. It was also, also situated in what was happening. 
So if you've been uh, here for a while, we talk a lot about the kingdom or we talk a lot about uh, what God is doing and we'll use this phrase already but not yet. And so we say the full, like God's love, God's kingdom is here already but not yet in its fullness. Right? God's mercy and His grace is here. Uh, our, our glorification is here already, but not yet in its fullness. And I want to, it's, it's, it's a nuance, but I want us to turn that phrase around so that we understand what's going on in the Old Testament when salvation comes into play. In the Old Testament, Oddly enough, it's not yet, but already. So what I mean by that is there is a future hope. The Messiah is here, is not here yet, but already God is saving us. God is delivering us. There is this sense in which the salvation of God's people happens, and it happens in the context in which they're in. And this is important because, as we said, Isaiah links repentance to salvation. And just so you know, Isaiah is not the only person to do this. This isn't simply an Old Testament concept, right? If I were to go through and look through the New Testament on uh, teaching on repentance, you'd see John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 saying, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Who told you to repent that judgment was coming? You see Jesus over and over again saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near, Right in, in, in Acts 3, Peter, as he preaches, he connects the act of repenting to belief in salvation. Paul does it. John does it. Repentance connected with salvation is not exclusively an Old Testament thing, but we have to understand that to move it forward into our context. You see, this call to repent is not repent and one day you'll die, and everything will be good. It's repent. Realize your state. And see God act now. Let me explain. When you understand salvation not simply as something that's going to happen in the who knows when, but that is happening right now. You begin to realize your current state, and that is absolutely necessary. Our understanding of salvation informs our understanding of sin. And our understanding of sin informs our repentance. And our understanding of salvation tells us these things about sin. Sin leaves you exiled from God right now. Right now. Sin leaves you exiled from your neighbor. And sin leaves you exiled from yourself. These realities are true right now. See, what's amazing is <clears throat> while Jesus talks about hell and while we talk about future judgment and while we believe that we believe that and it's in our creeds that we we say like we also recognize that sin is not just something that hurts you in the future sin is something that hurts you right now 
presently. And that you need salvation right now. And that you need repentance right now. Repentance is about a future hope, but it was also the hope of present rescue. And so when you begin to understand that, when you begin to understand that when the prophets say repent, and when the prophets say repent because salvation is near, salvation is coming, repent that you might be saved, they are not telling people, because they're speaking to a people in exile, they're not telling people repent, and then when you die, your exile will be over. They're saying repent, and God will deliver you. And that's the call now. Repent in this moment and God will deliver you. Okay, so <clears throat> if that's the case, if we're following that, then the very practical realities have to be asked. The practical questions have to be asked. What is repentance then? Because it's pretty critical. If we understand that our current state is one of exile. If, if our current state in sin, or sin as a factor, if our flesh exiles us from God, from others, from ourselves, then what do we need to do? What is repentance? What does it do in us? Why, why repent is another way to ask that. And so let, let's, let's, let's hit those things really quickly. Depending on your version of Isaiah 30, you may see that it says, rest and returning. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, or you will be delivered by returning and resting, or you will be saved by returning and resting, it may say that as opposed to repentance. And I think what's interesting is that it's that coupling together that is repentance, returning and, re and resting. When we say what is repentance, it's returning and resting. It's quietness or faith and trust. So let's break that down, returning and resting. We talked about this already. This is the Sunday school answer. What's repentance? It's going one way, recognizing that, and turning around. But I like the idea of returning just a little bit better. Because the idea of returning reminds you that you already belong to God. You belong to God. Sin estranges you from your Father. Sin estranges you from where you are meant to be, who you are meant to be. And so when we talk about repentance as returning, we are talking not just about whatever way you're going, turning around and going back. We're talking about recognizing that in all the ways that you are going, that are away from God, that your home still belongs with God. And so that when you turn around, home is there. It's not this idea of, all right, stop what you're doing and now figure out what you have to do. So, for example, if you, if, if, uh, if you struggle with, uh, struggle with if, if you take the sin of, of wrath, 
not anger, but wrath, right? You're just a, a wrathful person, consumed by anger. The slightest thing, you know, and, and this is the interesting thing about wrath, is that it can be displayed in multiple ways. And so a lot of times we think about it lashing out and just throwing, right, throwing stuff around. And, and, and sometimes, it, sometimes it plays itself out in that you are just consumed by anger. You turn it inward. Right? And if you are wrestling with that, and you hear the call, repent. You're like, okay, so I stop being angry, but then what? What do I do? Right? We, 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 we get trapped in this idea of figuring out the 12 steps, of figuring out the path, the seven ways, the, the three uh three undeniable realities realities about how to do this or how to stop doing this or how to be this. And we get caught up and we get worked up. And the minute that we don't do one thing, our hearts just turn right back around. We don't know how to live. We talk about repenting as turning around, but where do we go from there? And so when we think of it as returning, we think of it as actually going home. Right, So if I'm walking down the street and I realize uh, I'm, I'm going crazy right now, I need to go home, right? then when I turn around, I have a destination. I know where I'm going. But if it's just stop, turn, and walk away, that, that leaves us still aimless. And so this idea of returning, it gives us this notion that there is a place to go. What's interesting is that next word, rest. Because that word rest is a loaded term, biblically. That word rest is one of the oldest and, and most meaningful concepts. That word rest, it's tied together with Sabbath. Think about this. In the Psalms, David quotes, the, quotes God. He, he <clears throat> talks about God in his anger when the people were in the wilderness. And he swore, God swore in his wrath, you shall not enter my rest. David says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As, you did in Mer- as they did in Meribah and at Massa. So that you might enter God's rest. And then later what we see is the author of Hebrews picks up on David saying that, and he, and he has this really interesting note, notion, this argument. David is talking about God's people in the wilderness. Now if you read the story straight through, right, if you read Genesis Uh, straight through and then Exodus, Leviticus and you get to Numbers where it is if you read the story that way and you come to this and God says you will not enter my rest what you think necessarily naturally the rest is is the promised land 
and they don't. That generation doesn't enter the promised land. Now, this argument is important in understanding what rest is and what it is to rest. But the next generation does enter the promised land, and they live there in the land in what we think to be rest all the way through the days of David. So now here comes David saying that if you hear his voice and heed it, you will enter the rest of God. And the author of Hebrews says, why would David say that's a thing if rest referred to the promised land? Wasn't David already there? No, this rest is something deeper. This is the rest of God. The same rest that is connected to God resting from all his labors. It's connected to the Sabbath. It's connected to that state in which we are deeply connected to God, where we walk in relationship with God, where we are, as the scripture said, naked and unashamed. <coughs> Obviously not physically. But there's a sense in which we are free to be who God has made us without fear, without guilt, and without shame. Rest. Life with and in harmony with God. Rest. In repenting and rest, you shall be saved. He's saying he's connecting those two things. Turning to God and living in the rest of God. He, he keeps going. Listen, this isn't just overanalyzing this one phrase. He, he actually explains it. He says, you refused to return and to rest, to have faith and trust. You refused and said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. Do you, do you, do you get what he's saying here? He is saying that the problem that they had was that they thought by their own devices they could save themselves. Now here's what's interesting is we're not just talking about, oh, you're not a Christian and so you think by building a, an idol or by practicing these four or five things. It's not just unbelievers who do this. These are the people of God. Christians, we do this all the time. All the time. You want, you want, you have a problem with lust? Here's how you get rid of the problem of lust. Get yourself an accountability group. Put this program on your computer. Do this, do that, do this. And you'll be cured. The problem is that that lies directly and exclusively on ourselves. And what we're saying is I can craft my own righteousness. Now, listen, what I don't want you to hear is don't do anything. <laughs> don't work at all. But I want you to hear <laughs> that is not primary and that is not first. First is quiet your soul Turn back to God 
and rest in God. This idea of resting in God then means that you have to know who you are in God. You have to know what God has called you, what God has done, and what God is doing. The fact is, you are already free because of what God has done. You are already loved because what God has done. Anger, lust, malice, jealousy, greed, laziness, these things do not have the last word over you because of what we celebrated last week. Christ is risen, which means sin and death and all of the things that it brings with it are broken. So when you return and rest, you live in this reality that God has done what you cannot do. And then faith and trust is that action. It is then moving forward. So, so you're saying, we'll still do stuff. Yeah, yes, but the heart is different. The heart is, <clears throat> God has done this. I am resting in him, so I am free to move and act. I am free to, to surround myself with godly men and women who will encourage me in my weakness. I am free to express that weakness. We've created and we live in a church culture where, where there, there's kind of two polars and, and, and none of them are particularly helpful. One is that if you sin, like, ooh, something's wrong for you, you need to be immediately put under church discipline. You need to immediately face the, 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 like, the consequences. And what that does is it creates a culture of hiding, a, a culture of shame and fear of working to look a certain way, even though we're not changed. And then what happens, you get exhausted. You just get exhausted. Or you get found out and you get ex. There's no family there. There's no love there. There's no grace there. There's no gospel there. And then on the other side is this idea, I hate to sum it up in this word because I think the word is important, but it's been so abused. It's this idea of authentic. Like, when people say authentic, what they don't mean is like natural, like I'm not putting on a show. Like I think at one point that's what it meant, but another point, it's come to this point, there's this culture where it's like, I'm just me. <laughs> like deal with it. Here it is, here I am, I'm just me. Right? With no regard for the fact that sometimes you just being you with no regard for anybody else is damaging to people. And that's great that you're you, but You've been called to be so much more than just how you are now. Or that sin actually does exile you from yourself, which means that walking in a certain way makes it so that you can't know who you are. The heart is deceitful. That's how the scriptures say it. And so there's this like, there's this uh, legalism and then there's license, right? There's, there's, uh, <clears throat> This strain, always feeling there's guilt, and then there's just no conscience at all. And, and somewhere in between that is what we get, this sense of, I am who I am. I'm free to be weak because God is strong. And at the same time, because God is strong, I can then pursue holiness. 
I can pursue righteousness. I can pursue repentance. So it is returning and resting in God. And it's an act. It's a deed of faith. It's both. But we have to get it in the right order. We have to understand that God is underneath it or else we will burn ourselves out. So if we go back to that idea of, ang- of, of not just anger, wrath. Then the first thing that we, we get, the first thing that we get, I'm not alone in my hurt. You see, wrath is not, wrath doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of something, and usually it's hurt. At some point in time, you have been hurt. And the only way you've known how to deal with that hurt is to toughen it up, to, to push it in, to cover it. But the thing is, hurt, it, it's, it's a seed, right? It's not... It's not something that if you just turn away from it, it disappears, right? It's in there, and it, it grows roots, and it, it bubbles up, and after years or however long of this, you become hardened, you become angry, you become callous, you become isolated. Even in the middle of people, you become isolated, and you can't share that, right? And it overtakes you. And then even the slightest unintentional Thing becomes a like that person was doing this to me and I can't get over it you just that it, it's uncontrolled and so the first thing that you realize the first thing how this works uh, as an example is that you begin to realize that first of all you are not alone in your hurt God knows deeply that hurt you were never alone and God seeks and and desires to heal that hurt. You can face that hurt because you were never strong enough in the first place, but God is, right? And as you face that hurt, you're resting in God. You begin to realize that God hurts for me. God is a God of compassion. God has hurt for me. God cares. This thing that I've been hiding, God sees, knows, and loves me anyway. Right, you begin to trust in this God who cares for you. You see yourself as a child of God. And in the same way that, that a good, loving parent, when their child is hurt, comes to their side and is willing and wants and desires to help them, in the same way God wants to and does come beside you in your hurt. And so when you do that, then you're free to address the sin on top of that. You're free then to say, like, this, this malice, it doesn't have to control me. This thing, yeah, they did that. But I recognize, number one, that I have a deeper value than what that person has done to me. And number two, because of, what is God, because of who God is and what God has done in my life, there's nothing that anyone can take from me. There's nothing that anyone can do to me that changes ultimately my value, worth, position. So you can forgive. You can show grace. It starts with the returning and resting, and then it moves into this act of faith and trusting, right? Not acting out of that wrath has, takes faith. It takes faith that God is a God of justice. It takes faith that God is a God of grace and that God can balance both. And then you act out of that. 
Now see, that's not out of your own strength. And so when you look and you understand repentance as those things, then you can see why or what it does to us. What it does, and this is simple and we can move through this relatively quickly. First, it just it frees us to acknowledge our true state. Our true state is this. And I'll cite Tim Keller who put it this way. That you are far more broken than you ever dared imagine. That you are far more loved than you ever dared believe. When those two things play together, you realize your state, then you realize that my sin does put me in exile, but that exile is never so far removed from the God of grace and love that I can't now turn and receive. It frees us to acknowledge that, and then it transforms the heart. And this is the point. See, all of the other things, that's just changing your behavior. And the thing is, you can modify your behavior for a little bit, but a cold heart, a hard heart, will ultimately and always show itself. You swap addictions. You fall back into the same pit over and over again. You don't need a new five-step plan, right? I can do this in a very physical way, right? Like, let's not talk like super spiritual or difficult, like very physical way for me specifically. I've lost weight a lot of times, <laughs> right? And I do these intense things. And don't we do this with our sin? Like, I do these intense things like, oh, or like, I don't, I don't spend enough time in the Word, so i got to do this intense regime. I'll do this intense thing and I'll lose a lot of weight. And it's like, I can't sustain this. Like, my heart's not different. It, re it really isn't. Like, I don't enjoy health. <laughs> I mean, I like being, like, I don't like being sick, but I don't enjoy, like, health and fitness. I haven't figured it out yet, how to, how to do it. And so I try and it's like, hey, we're going to get ripped for the summer, right? No, no. And, and it goes away. Why? Because you're, you're doing this behavioral modifica modification and it works for a while. Like those diets, do this for 30 days, right? And, and uh, you know, like if you're doing them, go for it, have fun, right? But then at the end of it, you're not different. You've just done something different for a while. You've seen results, but then the minute you stop doing it, the minute that it wears off, the minute that you're like, oh my gosh, like I just want a carb, can I just have one carb, right? The minute you eat that first one, then it's done. And you just write back in. Your heart, like you haven't changed. And so what people tell me, and I imagine it's true, and perhaps one day I'll repent and, and apply it, is that when you do those incremental, when you realize who you are, how your body works, and how to live within that, you can find a health and fitness lifestyle that is not just behavior modification, but that is actually changing who you are, how you live, and, and making you a sustainably healthy person. It's the same way. It's the same thing with sin. It's not just a little dire plan like, oh, you've gone off the rails, and so now here's your like 30-day cleanse. This is you are a new person. You have a new, a renewed heart. 
You see, heart transformation is, here's what's here's so, so important about heart transformation as it applies to repentance, is that it does lead to behavior modification. A changed heart leads to new actions. New actions don't always lead to a changed heart. So when we talk about repentance and we talk about our life as, as, as disciples, what it is is constant repentance. It is constantly acknowledging the true state of our heart every moment, every morning, right? Every evening, acknowledging it and believing, returning, resting in God. And as we do this, we are transformed and we begin to act in trust, in faith. This is repentance. This is a daily thing. Look, there are a lot of other things we're going to talk about in following Jesus. We are going to talk about praying and fasting. We're going to talk about reading the word. We're going to talk about community and worship and service and giving and justice. But all of those things will just be little modifications to your behavior and not following Jesus if you don't have a heart. Of repentance. So the last thing is how is this possible? And it's right here at the end of the text that we read. It's possible because the Lord is gracious and merciful. Listen to this. So, so if you just read this whole text, what you get is this is the literal movement. God says repent, rest, be quiet or have faith and trust. But you're not going to do that. You're not doing that. You refuse to do that. Over and over again, you refuse to do these things. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy. Right? Like, this is remarkable. Like, the therefore in my book is I'm done with you. Therefore, you, this is how you want to go? Good luck. You know? <laughs> not the Lord. You, you, you refuse, you... You refuse to rest in me and trust me to, to care for you. So you, you, you make horses, or you, you don't make horses. You, you escape on horses when there's an army with faster horses and more horses and more people. Good luck, right? Doesn't work. You, you flee threat. Well, the threat flees you until you remain like a solitary people uh, on the mountains. You're alone and, and deserted, and you're, you're, you're in a bad spot. Right? You're the teenage girl on the roof in a horror movie. It's not going to end well. Right? And yet and still, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy, for people will live on Zion and Jerusalem, and you will never weep again. He will show favor to you at the sound of your outcry. As soon as he hears, he will answer to you. You have to hear this picture, which is a funny thing to say not typically how we receive a picture but you have to see this picture you are running from God you are 
actively saying, I don't want, need, or I, I got this. <coughs> and while you are doing that, he is actively rising up to bless you, to, to embrace you the very second you turn. So often, the fear that keeps us from repenting is the fear that when we turn around, there will be nothing. And we'll be left with all of our brokenness. The promise of the gospel is the minute we turn around, God is already standing with arms open to receive you. Therefore, you can.